Spread the fire. My name is Tessa Dooms, and today we're going to be talking a bit about um, the future of South Africa, but in a different way. We're going to be talking about the crisis of democracy. And we'll talk a little bit about why we are in the state that we are in and what does it look like for democracy to be in crisis in the country. We're going to talk about um, the ways in which that impacts, particularly on young people's um, participation in our democracy, and then finally talk about what is the way out to creating a better, more functional, uh, more useful democracy than the one that we have. So let's get into it. Spread the fire. Spread the fire. Spread the fire. So to get started, let's talk about what it means for democracy to be in crisis. What does it actually look like at a practical level, right? On the one hand, we could talk about elections, and I'm sure we will. But um, on the other hand, it's the daily ways in which we're disappointed by democracy that are probably most important. So at the end of November 2023, um, on Twitter, a video got released. And it seems like two people were, or three people were on an Instagram um, live. Um, a young black man and two young white Afrikaner people. And there's not a lot of context to this video, but we do see in the video that one of the young white people uses the K word um, and particularly says the EFFK word to the young person, the young black person they're speaking to. And I was watching that thing to see the response of the young black man because we're in 2023 and he points this out. He's like, 2023 and we're still dealing with racism. But it's not just racism. It's like the most blatant, overt, harsh, crass racism. It's the kind of racism that would have been normalized during apartheid, right? In a non-democratic South Africa. And he looks stunned and he looks hurt, but he looks disappointed. The, the look on his face mostly is disappointment. And I don't think they're, they're older than 20 years old all three of them. But for them to be sitting in that moment that easily could have played itself out during apartheid is a very good example about why young people are so disappointed and disillusioned by democracy. See, it's one thing to live in a country and live in a society where you know it's set up for racism, where you know the laws are racist, when you know that things are set up against you economically, socially, you can see it, you can feel it. But when we've been told that we are now in a different place, we are in democracy, then you expect different things and your levels of disappointment are higher. They're just higher. And so for that young person who's sitting there and trying to make sense of that moment, it's not apartheid, colonialism and slavery that has disappointed him in that moment. Unfortunately, what's disappointed him is democracy itself. And I'm at pains to always point out that if you're 30 years old in this country, all you know is a democracy and your life may not be better in even more substantive and ongoing and um, material ways than being told to your face you are a K-word and use such slurring, um, damaging language. And so we can't be surprised that young people are opting out. We can't be surprised that young people are saying this thing is not working, right? Um, when we look at the stats that we have, 
Somebody pointed out that we've got 60% youth unemployment. We all know that there's a war happening in Palestine, in Gaza. But before the 7th of October, the Palestinians who have been in war, in a war, were also at 60% unemployment. We have 75 murders a day in South Africa. That's wartime stats. There are countries literally in active conflict that don't have 75 people die a day. So we are living wartime stats in peacetime, democratic. Our constitution is the best in the world, South Africa. That's what's disappointing young South Africans. That's what's creating the sense of hopelessness with young South Africans. Because they're saying that this thing that we were sold is not working. And not only do we want a refund, we don't want the thing. What do we do when we get to that point? And I don't think we have thought about the consequences of the disappointment of democracy, right? And part of why I'm so um, pressed about elections, I'm so pressed about thinking about how we at least create some level of change, some level of something moving. And focusing on elections is the easiest one because at least there, the rest of us have a say, right? We have very little say in everything else that happens in governing our country. But with elections, at least 40 million of us can say something. But I, I think it's an important thing because I think if we can show even some level of democracy working for somebody other than the political and economic elites of the country, then maybe we have a chance of getting young people back and getting them back from that brink of just giving up on democracy altogether. And I think it's important. I think that we, I've been trying to find a way to articulate this best, and the best way I can say it is that the lack of a democratic dividend means that people blame democracy and we are giving democracy a bad name. That's what it is. Every time we fail to develop under democracy, every time people are still experiencing harm because they are LGBTQI+, even though our constitution protects them, we're failing people and we're giving democracy a bad name. Every time our unemployment stats go up rather than down, even though we're playing all the right games that the global markets want us to play, democracy has been given a bad name. And I think we haven't reflected on what that means. So when we call young people apathetic, I reject that. Young people in South Africa, young people around the world are not apathetic. They just don't like the outcomes of the thing that we've created, venerated, and decided is the standard for doing it the right way. It's like, there's a, there's a very good friend of mine um, who lived his, his life in very much kind of, you know, did all the right things, ticked all the right boxes, did great at school, got, you know, the highest grades went to university on scholarship, got every scholarship he could possibly get because his parents couldn't afford to take him. Decided that he was going to be really good in terms of, you know, dating and being very, very good person in terms of dating. Look for a wife, get a job, did all of those things and ended up being divorced and alone before he was 30. And 
I want you to think about what that means for somebody who ticks all the right boxes but still doesn't get it right. What does it mean for everybody looking at that person to feel like you ticked all the right boxes? I feel like South Africa is in that situation right now. We're ticking all the right boxes, but we're still not feeling like we're getting the kind of outcome that they said we would get. And I want to end this segment by just talking about the consequences of that, not just for us here, but for the rest of the continent. Because if we tick all of these boxes, constitution, regular elections, credible elections, um, changing of hands of presidents, things that other African countries are still striving for, still wanting. We have the freedom of speech. We have all of these things going for us. If we fail, then those still striving for those democratic principles have no chance of continuing to fight for it because they too will feel like it will be futile. And so we must recognize that young people are not apathetic. They are disappointed in democracy. In this segment, I want to talk about what the consequences are for a democracy that's not delivering, for this disappointment with democracy that I've tried to lay out. Um, a study by Afrobarometer that was recently released says two stats that I found incredibly alarming. The first is that only 46% of South Africans, and this is across age ranges, with actually the lowest group being the oldest group, says that they are happy with democracy. Only 46% of South Africans say they approve of democracy as a system. So and we're not just talking here about young people, right? Which means that over 50% of South Africans are now saying, eh, we might be able to do better than democracy. The second stat is probably more alarming. 72% of South Africans said that they would be willing to forego elections if it meant getting development. If they had to barter between getting a vote versus getting development outcomes, and that was a choice they had to make between one or the other, they would choose getting development and discard the vote. That means that the majority of our country is willing to live under authoritarianism as we speak. We, we have a celebrated democracy and the majority of us are saying we would take a strong man. So when we hear people anecdotally point towards the Northeast, towards strong man, man politics, towards Rwanda, when we hear that, we shouldn't be surprised. Because what people are saying is that we didn't, surely we and our parents and our grandparents didn't fight for a vote. Surely people didn't give their lives for a vote. They gave their lives so that vote can translate into actual change, can translate into actual outcomes, better lives, toilets, sanitation, water, jobs, economic opportunities, dignity. And people are saying, we want that more than we want to vote. It should absolutely alarm all of us. Because the bedrock of 
the social contract that we've created here is a democracy that we're losing faith in, is a democracy that we're willing to trade as we speak. Now, this is not only a phenomenon in South Africa, for sure. And we can cast our eyes to many places around the world where authoritarianism has become a heightened thing, a heightened reality. We've seen Brazil had the Bolsonaro um, four years, and you saw a right-wing authoritarian that didn't care about democracy and human rights win the majority of a popular vote. We saw the Trump era and the ways in which democracy was just thrown into flux um, in the U.S. and the ways in which people just said, you know, let's, let's renegotiate the whole thing if we are not all happy with it. We've seen in Europe number of authoritarians, politicians, parties that are pushing back against democracy and pushing back against progressive values, human rights, equality, justice, all of those things. We risk losing a lot because we're not developing. We're, so when we look at those scorecards, this week I was, I was devastated almost when the president said, well, you know, I'm going to do the scorecards for all my ministers, but I'm not going to make them public because I don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to embarrass people who are spending 87 million rand on beachfronts that don't produce any economic outcomes. They don't even get built. They're spending millions on schools that are in disrepair, that are spending, that are stealing money en masse, even at a time of COVID when we were dying. The president is more willing to protect his ministers then make sure that they actually de deliver on development. That's the reason why we're in crisis. Because maybe we've decided to protect these institutions and the structures more rigorously and vigorously than we're willing to actually deliver on development. And so we're sitting in a context where we really need to do something different. We need to do that. Operation Dudula and all sorts of ways in which we're starting to engage that we are all, you know, many of us are very surprised by people opting into xenophobic narratives, opting into um, anti-democratic practices. It is, shouldn't surprise us anymore. The reason why it's happening is people are disappointed with democracy itself and doesn't, don't, don't think it's going to deliver. So how are, particularly in our context, how is that showing up? We've seen it showing up in mobilization of very authoritarian, right-wing, um, harmful, unjust movements that are popping up everywhere. We've seen an increase in protest. And while protest is a democratic right, when you have them at the rates that we do in our country, you must know that people are saying the institutions aren't working because people are riling against those institutions. We're also seeing it in people just leaving the system. And there's a lot to be said about people's mass exodus from voting itself. But I think the way in which that it's, it's most obvious and most evident that people have given up for me is the crisis that we're having around social cohesion and mental health.
And I'm going to say this with as much uh, or as little drama as possible. But it's starting to feel like democracy is killing us. And just one way to think about that is the number of people who feel like life is not worth living in this country. And so they'll take their own lives. The number of people who feel there's no point in preserving each other's lives and community, and so they'll kill at a moment's notice. The number of people just who are starving in the country. We've got a hunger crisis that is actually killing people. And so in a context where democracy is failing, the outcome is that democracy is killing us and killing our sense of humanity, killing our sense that we have a shared project here that we can work on. We have something to live for and we must live with each other. So we have conversations about social cohesion and we say we need a more socially cohesive society. And we think that we're going to do that social cohesion through flags and symbols and arts and culture and rugby world cups and all of that. It's not going to work. The only way that we're going to create a more cohesive society here is getting everybody to buy into our shared project and own this democracy. So the IEC's 2024 campaign slogan is, um, it's your democracy, own it. And I think that's probably the most apt thing that we need to say right now, is how do we start taking ownership of this democracy? How do we start seeing this thing as something that we are invested in so that, you know, somebody else's struggle is my struggle because I know we have a shared project, that our lives are only going to make sense if we all invest in this thing. I often think back to the July riots in 2021, and I remember how fixated we in the political bubble were with the ANC's machinations and the question about you know, does Jacob Zuma still have a base that's this strong, that it's willing to take to the streets? And then I remember sitting back and just listening to the interviews that were being done by journalists, stopping people while they were rioting and looting and asking them, why are you doing this? And listening to how person after person after person after person said nothing about politics and said, I'm hungry. My family doesn't get the same things that other families get. This is an opportunity for, for me to get something that's mine. This isn't mine anyway. These industries, these businesses, I can never shop here anyway. Why should I care? We really must have a sense that people own this country. We don't have that sense for the majority of people. The majority of people are watching a country that is, is benefiting somebody else, is owned by somebody else, they can only participate through somebody else. And if we don't change that, we can never get people back in. We can never buy people back into the democratic process if the process or the, the democracy is more about the institutions and the politicians than it is about the people themselves and their ownership. And so I do want to talk substantively about what I think needs to change and what we must imagine. But... In terms of ownership, I would like to just focus in on three things where ownership is absolutely key. The first thing is the age-old question of land. 
We can have all the democracy in the world if people don't even own the land they are on, then what is the point? What is democracy without being able to even own and have a share in the actual land you're on? What makes us a nation is that we share this geographic space. But if I have no part of this geographic space, I can't own this land. I can't do anything on it. I can be removed from it from pillar to post at one moment or the other. Then what is the point? What hope do I have of building anything if I can't own the land? The second is an ownership of our identity and of who we are. The ability for us to self-identify, for us to create meaning and communities with each other. At the moment, the only thing that we are truly bound by are either our cultural groups, racial categories, or what the economy decides to place us as. Workers, unemployed, owners. And there's very little space for us to identify ourselves and build a sense of who we are and who we want to be. We're not having even conversations about what does it mean to be successful in this country? What does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean for you to be a, an adult that is able to say, I am a South African and this is what it means to me? We don't really have a sense of identity. We don't have a sense of shared identity. And I think we have to be able to own identity if we're going to get anywhere. And the third is probably the most important, which is the ownership of our efforts and our value and our labor and our economic participation. We, we have to have a stake in the economy, and that's not just a nominal thing. It's not just we must be invited into the, the room so that we can get shares or we can get jobs. It has to go a step further than that. We need to be able to say, if I have an idea, a thought, a dream, a talent, a skill, I can use it in the society and it can be valued enough that I can live off it. I need to be able to own my economic destiny. That doesn't say to me, well, the markets want you to go and study this, therefore go and study this and then the markets will reward you. It doesn't say to you, well, you know, this is what the government's plan is and if you don't fit into these five sectors, then there's nothing for you. The best economies in the world are driven from the bottom up on purpose, are driven from people's actual abilities and actual skills. And that's whether you go to China and people are driving forward through innovation and tech, or you're going to the US and you're seeing the Silicon Valleys or the Hollywoods where people's talent and drive all gets made part of the system or you go to more rural um, countries where agriculture is what pushes it, like a country like Thailand, where food and agriculture is what drives the entirety of the economy. What is common in those situations is that what we have in terms of our people, what the people offer the economy is the thing we value. We don't hold people ransom and say, if you cannot offer these skills, then you can't be part of the economy. That's not what drives an economy. We have to drive a human-centered economy where people can say, I have something to give and therefore I can own 
a stake in this country. And so as we think about going forward, I want us to recognize that the thing that's going to bring people back to democracy is not us harping on about whether they vote, harping on about whether they respect the Constitution, harping on about whether they respect the different institutions, but a return to people as the center of democracy, where the people truly govern because it is their democracy, not somebody else's. So in this section, I want us to think about the future. And because it's the end of the year, um, the end of 2023, I could either have focused on a reflection on the year that's been, but I really actually want to talk about going forward. And the most immediate thing in front of us is to plan for 2024. But I want us to plan for 2024 and beyond 2024 um, challenging ourselves to imagine something different. So um, working, in, especially in the last two years, in the world of political think tanks and watching polling data um, around the election very closely, I have realized, as much as even my organization produces polling data now, that polling data assumes the status quo. When we look at the polls that say, well, the ANC will get 52%, the DA will get 22%, da 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 da, all of that assumes the status quo. It assumes that very little will change from the past and that the baseline is the past. It also then draws on people in very particular ways. Sampling matters. So we're not going to have a long conversation about what makes a, a poll more valid or not but definitely who has access to giving those answers matter, right? And so there are, it's the status quo, it's who's willing to respond, who's engaged. I'm almost 100% sure that the young people that I've been speaking about who have given up and are disappointed in democracy, who are not even interested at this point in the democratic process, are not the ones responding in mass to polls about the 2024 election. And so the people who are responding are generally the people who still believe in the thing, generally the people who are still likely to show up, generally the people who are still in the game. But that's a smaller and smaller group of people in South Africa, which means the realities of what the future could look like is actually in the hands of a majority of people who are on the outside of the conversation, who are on the outside of governance, who are on the outside of structures and institutions, as opposed to those who are in, in especially what I call the political bubble. The political bubble of people who are like invested in politics on an ongoing basis. That's a small minority of people in this country with a lot of power. And part of the reason for that is the way that democracy, especially modern democracies have structured themselves. We've seen it all around the world where democracies are easily captured by a small elite and controlled by that small elite, and where people don't actually fuss anymore about whether or not the majority of people even vote or participate or are part of the process, as long as the system works and the small elite are still involved, they seem to be fine. But I think that there is an opportunity and there is a um, a mission that we must set for ourselves about harnessing the opportunity of those 
who are disillusioned, who are outside the fray, who aren't in the center of politics. And that's only going to be done when all of those people who are disillusioned, disappointed, recognize that they could actually be a part of not just participating in the system that is, but imagining new systems, imagining new ways of doing things, right? So at the Ravonia Circle, we, we have a program called the Democracy Builder. The Democracy Builder is this four-phased process that we go through in one day in a workshop where we have people talk about the way they think about and feel about democracy. And they explain you know, what democracy means to them. And many people start off with explaining democracy in these very kind of academic terms, abstract terms. Democracy means freedom or equality or voting. And slowly people start talking about democracy as a lived experience and then realize that what they described and what they live is very different. But the second part of it is for people to start talking about what things they'd like to solve for in their communities. What would you like to see, uh, what, participate in changing? Not just see different, but participate in changing in your communities. And we try and aggregate that in the room so we can find what the priorities are, the shared priorities are in a community. But the third part of the workshop is the most important for us. And it's the part of the workshop we call South Africa 2.0. And after people have determined what it is they'd like to work on, we then ask them to imagine what South Africa would look like if that thing was fixed, if that thing was operating at its best, if that thing was different and better, what would South Africa look like? So somebody might take something like jobs and we say to that group, all right, what does a South Africa where jobs is solved look like? Not what does it take to get there? What does the future look like? And the analogy that I've come to use for explaining why this is an important exercise is the idea that South Africa is due for an upgrade in the same way that cell folks get upgraded, right? So imagine that in 1994, what we got was the equivalent of my first cell phone, which is a little Alcatel. And it was clearly better than the thing we had before. And I know this is debatable at this point, but we must know that apartheid was a crime against humanity and remains a crime against humanity no matter how disappointed we are in democracy. And so when we got democracy, even its most basic form, we had a better thing than the crime against humanity. And I hope we can all agree on that at some point, regardless of how, we, how disappointed we are in the present. And so for me, it was like getting my first cell phone and I didn't have to use the landline in my mother's room anymore to take calls from my boyfriend. You know, small win, but important win. And so the cell phone became really important. But all I could do on that cell phone was call, get and receive texts or send and receive texts and play snake. Couldn't do anything else. Now imagine if I kept that cell phone from the first day I got it for 20 to 30 years and I held on to it and I'm like, because the cell phone is better than what I had, I'm going to just stick with the cell phone. We're not going to change anything. We're just going to try and make the cell phone work until the death. Everybody would, at this point in society would think I'm crazy because we now know that cell phones can be so much better, can do so much more. We have now imagined our way to better versions 
of a cell phone. That's what upgrading our cell phones has allowed us to do. However, we've not allowed ourselves to upgrade our democracy. We've not allowed ourselves to upgrade South Africa and the image and the picture we have of what South Africa could be. More importantly, we've not done the thinking work about what kind of South Africa we want together. So I sometimes think that part of why we're so, especially those of us who are working every day to do something about the country, people in the NGO space, people in businesses, particularly small business owners, um, even public servants, even politicians who are of the better, and we can debate if any of those exist. But I sometimes feel some, that part of why we're so disappointed and so tired and so exhausted is because we're trying to like do programs and projects and we're trying to do things, but we actually don't know what we're building. So it's like we're all building a house together, but we haven't had a single conversation about the plan. We've not had a single conversation about what the house must look like at the end. We've not had a single conversation. So you're building a two room, you're building a hotel, you're building a shack, but we're all building at the same time. And we're getting nowhere because we don't know what we're doing. And so the idea about South Africa being due for an upgrade is only valid if we all realize that we need a shared vision of what that looks like at the end, and that we have to have a commitment that we're all gonna participate not only in the making of it, but in the imagining of it. If we don't have the same idea in our head about what success looks like, what a good South Africa looks like, what a good life is, we're going to be chasing after different things. There are people in South Africa for whom a good life is the ability to feed their family every day. Whereas 20 minutes down the road, a good life is the difference between one type of champagne and the other. We're building different things. And until we get to a minimum viable set of things that we agree on and we start building towards it together, we're not actually going to build this country successfully. And so that project starts with imagination. It starts with a shared and joint exercise of imagination and thinking and designing. And we must know where we're going to together. And that's why it was important for me that we recognize that we're not doing that work because oppression stole that from us and steals that from us on an ongoing basis. Um, I do a lot of work talking. I'm talking right now. <laughs> and there's leisure that is required for talking and thinking to happen. And that leisure is not afforded to people when they're hungry. That leisure is not afforded to people when they're surviving. That leisure is not afforded to people when they're scared they're going to be robbed and killed in the middle of the night. That leisure is not afforded to women who are worried that their own partners are going to rape them and rape their children. So we haven't created the, the space and held space for this country to actually have the time and the resources to start to imagine together what it is that we want and need, what kind of future we want. So if we're going to fix democracy, my suggestion is that we start with a shared program of creating a shared vision of what we want and empowering as many people in the society to participate in that imagination and not allow oppression to continue to steal our opportunity to participate.
Now, all of that sounds incredibly theoretical, and I assure you it's not. And I'm going to give some examples from our work to show that it's not, that it's actually very possible, but we're going to need to do the work, and that work requires us to stop gazing at the ivory towers and the palace of politics and start looking at the ground. So in the last year, um, well, last year and a half that we've been doing Democracy Builders, the last section of the Democracy Builders, we encourage people to do a project and a six-week project in that community. Of the 81 communities we've been to, we've had 51 projects committed to, only 11 that have not been completed. But the majority of these projects have stunned us. People have, in a six-week period, in this country, with all of the constraints in a township, gone from not having a clinic that was promised to them for 27 years, to getting a mobile clinic to arrive at their community, be resourced and stocked by the government, and to get the communities to start participating, to start raising funds for it, creating queuing systems, all of that. And that's in, the, in, in Naturina in the south of Joburg. From this program, we've seen about nine farms, local farms in communities started. We've seen apps. We've seen awareness programs around social inequality issues. We've seen people actually even create roads in their rural towns in these six-week projects. What we've seen is that with very little impetus and just giving people the dignity and the opportunity to imagine and see themselves implementing, people are able to go from disillusioned and disenchanted to absolutely vibrant in their own context and in building the democracy, co-governing as it were. And I believe it's possible. I believe it's possible at scale. I believe it's possible if we do it in ways that are thoughtful. But it must also be a project where we don't give up on the state. And so I think that part of the responsibility that we have in going into the 2024 elections is to firstly activate and mobilize as many people in this country to a point where they are active and they're willing to participate in change. Everybody must believe they have a role to play. Everybody must believe they can own the thing. And if it takes the election for us to be able to show that mobilization power, let's use it. The election might not change everything. It may not topple the ANC, whatever grand plans people have in mind. But if at bare minimum this election can show people that we can organize, we can mobilize, we can do something and it can shift a needle, it can make us see each other differently, it can cause our communities to be more cohesive, then at least we've done one thing to take us from hopelessness to more hope. The other thing that 2024 means for us is that with the world where it is, there will be over 50 elections in the world next year. Over 50 countries have the potential to change governments at the same time. Given the size of some of those countries, it actually means that over half the living population will be voting in the next year. Some people have said, well, voting is just a bridge too far. It's not useful. It's never gotten oppressed people freedom. My question to those people is, if not voting, then what? What is your alternative? And what is the cost of the alternative you have on the table? I'm willing to go to the streets, guys. 
I am willing to go to the streets, but I don't have children. I don't have much to lose, but we've got a lot at stake. And so the thing that we have on the table is the vote. How do we use that as creatively as possible to drive change? And what would it look like if our votes as a world next year brought in new governments we've never imagined? What if we did the work to not just move the players on the chessboard, but actually throw out all those players and put new players in? We could actually change the world through elections if we committed to doing the work. And so I think we have an opportunity. I think South Africa has an opportunity next year to use these elections to mobilize, but I think we also have an opportunity to show ourselves that things can actually change in our own hands. The election is the only time all of us have something in our hand that we can do at the same time. We all can do it at the same time. And I want us to use that because my ultimate hope is that we actually look at our democratic edifice. We look at these things that make up our democracy, the constitution, voting, um, the judiciary, the way the executive is structured. And we start imagining the whole thing, right? In one of our democracy builders, there was a group that was looking at local government and they said, our vision for local government is that it no longer exists. I want us to get there where we can start imagining things out of the system if it's not working for us and start imagining things into the system that we never thought of. What, what does it look like to start questioning whether voting and one man, one vote is actually the right thing for us going into the future? When do we have that conversation? I want us to get there, but I am saying that before we can get there, we need to use every tool that's in our toolbox right now. And elections is one of them. We must not leave any tool off the table that we have right now. If you win an election, your power to imagine new things increases dramatically. If you participate in an election and you get the kind of government that you deserve, your power to get things that you never imagined increases immediately. And so I'm suggesting for 2024 and beyond that we start looking at what all the tools are in our toolbox and we start using them all. Right now, we have gotten stuck at protest as a country. We are stuck at protest. And again, I will take to the streets any day. I have been in more protests this year than I've maybe been in my whole life. I'm not averse to protest. But I also know that those who have the levers of power in their hands are happy to wait out the anger. They're used to anger now. They will wait us out. You'll protest for 10 days, they'll wait for day 11. You protest for 100 days, they'll wait for day 101. They're just gonna wait for us to get tired. We need to get smart, get in the game and start using all of the tools in our toolbox. And the 2024 election is one of those tools that we can use for mobilization, for organization, but also to take control so that we can imagine the future that we deserve.